Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Nikki Alt, who's a, a writer who has penned a number of hit theatre shows, as well as having written several books and a film. Nikki's first real success as a writer in theatre came with the show Brick Up the Mersey Tunnels, a musical comedy about people on opposite sides of the River Mersey. The show has become a, wrong, a long-running success in the city, now seen by almost 200,000 people, and its success was critical in saving Liverpool's historic Royal Court Theatre from closing. His next theatre venture, One Night in Istanbul, became the Empire Theatre's fastest-selling show, watched by 26,000 people in its first short run back in 2009. The title refers to Liverpool's 2005 Champions League triumph and is an indication of Nicky's passion for football and Liverpool Football Club in particular. And he's also the co-author of the prize-winning Liverpool FC Interactive Stadium Tour. The theatre production of One Night in Istanbul enjoyed subsequent successful runs in the city, as well as in Belfast and Dublin, while it was also made into a film in 2014. In staying with football, Nicky wrote and produced You'll Never Walk Alone, a show about the history of Liverpool FC, which, when we return, hopefully before too long, to a post-pandemic world, will be heading out on its travels around the world. And he's also written the smash hit show Celtic the Musical, which has had sellout runs in Glasgow in 2016 and 18. And having seen the show, I can testify as to how wonderful it is. Nicky, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Hi, Paul. Nice to see you. Good to see you uh, in these strange times. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, obviously, it's strange times. And, you know, I, I mentioned there about, you know, one of your, your real passions in terms of football, and you've been able to bring that to the theatre. But as a as a writer, and, you know, theatre's such a big part of what you've done, that m- must have been a frustrating time, because obviously theatres have, have closed. So there's no vehicle for you, either with what you've done or for new work, to be able to, to show that to the world. Yeah, it is difficult times. But, you know, there's always somebody worse off. And I do live by that mantra, because... You know what? You, you see a lot of a lot of media's thrown at us today, and you see a lot of stories from around the world. You see wars and and people in famine and stuff. At the end of the day, no matter what people think, you know your average citizen in the country we live in here in, in Scotland, England, wherever we are on this island here, we're still decently. Most of us are still decently well off, even if we're unemployed in a flat somewhere and the welfare is paying. We're better off than people in the world who are starving and stuff. So. I always have that attitude about shows. And I think some people in theatre, what I've noticed is they tend to get a little bit too serious about theatre. They get really involved in it. It's, it's like it's their whole life. And then like when something like this happens, you know, their life sort of caves in. They've got no theatre. They can't act. They can't produce. To me, it's become my job and what I do. And uh, it's not good. But at the end of the day, it's not the end of the world. And, you know, things will move on and we'll get back to it again. So... Because one of the things when I've mentioned some of the shows, and I think the first time I, I, I met you is when I came down to see the You'll Never Walk Alone down in Liverpool. And, and I think one of the things that always strikes me about the work that you've done is I think it's it's so accessible, but I think it's bringing a lot of people into the theatre that maybe otherwise would think, mm, I'm not sure if theatre's for me. And I've seen it up here in Glasgow with Celtic the Musical. People absolutely love 
you know, what you're doing and what you're giving them. And it's, and it's bringing a whole different audience to theatre. That was the whole idea why I went into theatre, Paul. Well, at first I had, all I wanted to do was maybe write some stuff for TV and write some books. And, and I never attacked it any differently than that. And one of the things I watched many years ago was The Sopranos, and I loved that show. Uh, I loved it to such a degree. I probably watched the whole series, I think, four times now. You know, there's certain things. Everybody's got their own their own opinions on stuff. But my opinion on that was the best TV show I'd ever seen. So I, I sort of watched it and thought, I'd like to be able to write at that level. So once I started to get involved in theatre and looked at theatre, I just noticed, and this is a very simple way of looking at things, I noticed that in every city all over the country, all over England, Scotland, Ireland, everywhere, there was many, many big, huge theatres sitting there, half empty. I looked at the theatres and I thought, there's all these huge empty theatres. And I was asking a lot of people, a lot of people said no, they didn't really go to theatre. And the, the, the answer always was, they don't really cater or do anything for me or for us. So I thought, what do all the people I, I mainly know, what do they mainly like in, in cities like Glasgow and Liverpool? You know, apart from life itself and, you know, general creativity, whether you like books, you like TV, a lot of people love football. So I thought, well, OK, introduce the football to the theatre. I got a couple of theatre managers who said to me, I'm not bringing a lot of hairy arse kind of football fans into my theatre. And this is, the, this is what I used to hear a lot at the beginning. I pushed on and I could see that football, especially in the English Premiership, was going very corporate. But it was becoming a business level where a lot of people in, say, Liverpool had grown up with just Liverpool and Everton and it was just those football clubs and nothing else. Suddenly, their football clubs, they didn't feel part of it. It was like so much big business from around the world was getting involved that people felt slightly disenfranchised. So I thought, give them something in the theatre, like their very best moments or something about being a fan or a journey they went on. Because I, I think a lot of the, the most interesting aspects of football, it's not what happens on the pitch. It's all the football culture and what happens outside. I've always thought that. I think even during, without me getting too sidetracked, I think during this lockdown, one thing I've realised is how much I love football culture as opposed to thinking I just love football. I, I realised how big it was the culture thing, the being outside the stadiums, the, you know, the, the buying of the pies and a few drinks. It was all of the thing around the game. So I tried to introduce that to the theatre. And I still don't think, I think with me, I don't even think it's been done enough because a lot of theatres were still sat empty. I approached my local theatre, the Everyman and Playhouse, which is the local funded theatre in Liverpool. Glasgow will have its own funded theatres. I'm not sure what the funded theatres are in Glasgow. And they were not interested. So what I had to do was I had to raise the money. I did a show, the One Night in Istanbul thing. And I think because it hadn't been done before, the Empire Theatre, which is the second biggest theatre in the country, they couldn't believe it because we had tickets out outside. We had people pushing through barriers to get in and stuff. And there was a shock. If I, I really, I probably could go on and just make a living from doing football club histories. I, I was supposed to maybe do Arsenal's or, or West Ham's, I think, next after the Celtic and Liverpool you know, take a lot of research and do it. And you have to have that hardcore fan base where, I said it for a reason, where the fans of, around those stadiums and around those football clubs have yeah. grown up with it, it's their culture. And I think if you feed that back into people, people will go into the theatre to hear their own stories because at the end of the day, they're not my stories. I can tell my own stories through that medium, but they're people's stories. So I think theatre misses a big trick. I think a lot of theatres still all over the country are, are not grasping onto the fact that Give the people what they want, not what the production manager or 
the you know the director creative director wants you often you get theaters and it, it goes by what the creative director of that theater wants to put on yeah. and that's no good and i've approached theaters and told them this but i think they look at me and think he's a bit of a know-all we've been in theater 20 years what does he know and so so there you go so that's why i've had to push on privately and, and sort of produce these things too but realistically i would love theatres themselves to commission me and give them the, the job. It'd be much easier for me. Because the thing is, there's a place for both. You know, obviously some of the things that they're commissioning, there's an audience there. But as you say, as you've shown, and again, up in Glasgow, the Celtic the Musical, twice it's been on, shown that there's actually, there's people who want to go to the theatre, as you say, to see their stories, to see their family stories, to see that history and culture. Probably frustrating, I think, I think the last year in terms of football, because obviously Liverpool had that brilliant title triumph the first time in 30 years, Celtic won nine in a row, and both, you know, you'll never walk alone in Celtic the musical. Would they been able to incorporate that and celebrate it? But, you know, we haven't been able to do that either in, in Glasgow or Liverpool. They were, they were ideal moments to play those shows. But if I just say to you, you know, I could take that a step further, Paul, and, and, and things like, you know, like a hero or a legendary hero at, at Celtic, say, uh, Tommy Burns. I always loved that footballer because I always felt, and a number of us here, down here, felt, People in Glasgow wouldn't really know this, but he had his testimonial game against Liverpool. And I remember Tommy Burns, he really was like a fan on the pitch. And he's a story you could tell in a theatre or to a number of people. So I, I did often think about writing something about Tommy Burns. It may not be this, you know, that huge Celtic audience, but there's so many different stories here within football itself that don't resonate just on a football pitch. They resonate also about people's lives, how they've lived, what they did in and around football. I could literally just write that stuff till a day I die. I easily could. But I think sometimes you don't want to be pigeonholed like you're just football. But I'm actually reaching a stage as I've gotten older because I, and I, I don't say it lightly. I was addicted to football when I was young. And it's a very mild, I'll, I can explain that later, but it was a very mild addiction compared to drugs and sex and gambling and all these sorts of addictions people have. But I was addicted to football. So once I withdrew because I thought it was very business in the Premier League, I started to see what I could do and whether all those years of me being like sort of addicted to football, I could incorporate that into theatre, into books. So I literally could just write about that stuff forever. Interesting. You mentioned uh, earlier on about The Sopranos, the fact that was, you know, for you, the best thing you'd ever seen in TV. And a couple of guys I worked with had been going on about it. Again, similar to you. It wasn't even an argument for them. That's the best thing that's ever been in TV. I had never watched it. And so recently, just over the last few weeks, I thought, I'm going to have to watch this. And you know that way, you just slowly get into it to the point, I think I'm about midway through season three now, and I'm trying just to pace myself to watch it, but I, I'm absolutely loving it now. <laughs> I think I'm the last person in the country to watch it. No, no, I've got another friend who's the same as you. He's only watching it now. I think what you have to do is you have to pace yourself, because otherwise you suddenly find you, you're addicted and putting it on all the time, and because you know you can binge watch and then suddenly it's gone. Yeah, and I think the same when I told the guys in work I was doing it, they were slightly envious because I'm getting to, you know, to experience that for the first time. And obviously, like you, they've watched it and they've watched it again and they've watched it again. So, uh, so far, so good. I think it, it, it must have been so good, The Sopranos, because I think I even enjoyed it maybe the second time even more because I'd started to notice a lot of really dark humour in, in the show that I'd never noticed before because I was just so busy at the beginning watching the characters and the story it was about all these gangsters in New York. But secondly, I started to watch the writing and all the little nuances and the, and the dark comedy. And I think second time I enjoyed it even more. So 
Listen, I, I am envious too. I wish I was watching it for the first time. <laughs> I'll, I'll watch it first time and then I'll see if I'll, I'll see if I watch it again. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. In terms of the podcast, obviously what I do with every guest is kind of take you back on the, the literary journey of your life and get you to choose some of your, your favourite and not so favourite books. And the first one is going back to childhood, your favourite book from childhood. And uh, you've chosen a brilliant thing, actually. Probably the first person to do this in terms of its actual annuals. And it's Charles Buchan's, well, soccer gift book. It's like a football annual. I know that they used to have like a Charles Buckins football monthly, but obviously you would get the annual. And I suppose that feeds into, uh, was that when you first started your, your your love and your addiction of football? Yeah, what it is, I had uncles who buy the, the monthly and stuff, and they lived in the tenements in, in the centre of Liverpool, a place called Jared Gardens, which is very, very well known in Liverpool. And I would sneak into the bedrooms, always wondering how 10, 11 kids got brought up in these two bedrooms. But then I'd find these stack of magazines, and a lot of them are boxing magazines, the old ring magazine. And I'd also find football magazines. When I told my mum about it, you know, uh, we weren't too well off. She'd always get me the football annual every Christmas. And I'd get really upset if there wasn't no Liverpool pitches in the annual <laughs> Christmas time. And she'd catch me sometimes going to cut the pages with scissors and she'd say, leave the pages alone, don't you be doing that. So I used to read them books back to cover because... They were not like the school books I was getting. There was big colour pictures of football and stadiums. And I was, I was like reading this. I remember one with the Everton footballer, Alan Ball, on the front. And there was this huge clock in Everton's ground. And I remember looking at the cover and just staring at the cover because it was such a fantastic... You can still see the picture. It's on the internet there. And it's an Everton-Manchester United picture on the front of the book. And it just shows, I think, Alan Ball raising his army, army score. And I would stare at these pictures and then read the story. So it was a real good introduction to books because... I was a kid who needed, I needed the visual too. I, I couldn't, some kids could, and I envied them that they could, but I couldn't pick up a 100-page book or I couldn't take it off a teacher and go home and read it. I wouldn't read it unless there was some nice pictures in there too. It's funny, I don't, because I always used to get annuals when I was a kid, but it was things like Shoot or Roy the Rovers. And then up here in Scotland, we have, every year it was either the Bruins or Our Willie, which is obviously the cartoon strip from the Sunday Post. So they alternated the annuals. I'm not sure if kids nowadays get annuals the way that we would when we were younger but I think I'm not sure if Charles Buckingham's annual was maybe more focused on English football I can't remember now I think I'm sure I have Scottish football into because part of the, the reason I, I grew to like Celtic it wasn't even an Irish thing or or anything to it what I liked about Celtic when I was a kid I had an uncle who really loved Celtic because of the Irish thing and because of Liverpool and Celtic and Glasgow and Liverpool I loved it because of the football kit and I remember Celtic's football kit jumping off the page, the green and white stripes, and going, whoa, look at the colour of that football kit. And I think that's where then it, it, it sort of... I wanted to watch some of the games with that green football kit on TV, but I think we only had a black and white TV <laughs> anyway. But I, I think... I'm sure there was Scottish football, and there was the other book, The Topical Times, which was very similar to Charles Buchan's book. And then I read Roy of the Rovers. I also used to read the All-Willy stuff because it was in the... The Daily Post, and my mum and dad used to get the Daily Post on a Sunday, so the all, all Willie comic was sometimes in the middle. Yeah, and I think because of that, and I liked it, I'm sure my mum got me the All Willie Christmas annual a couple of times too, but it didn't match up to the football and the colour of the football for me. Because I suppose as well, the, the timing of you know when you're getting those annuals for Christmas when you're just a wee guy, it kind of almost coincides with you know Liverpool's re-emergence when Shankly came in from the sixties onwards, and then the seventies they were just you know when you're really getting into following football, 
that coincides with your team suddenly becoming the best team in Europe. It, it is, but it's it, it also it has a lot to it, it was to do with the the Phoenix Rise and the football team becoming a football team again. But I mean, we'd grown up on these legendary stories of the cop singing and and Bill Shankly. But as soon as anybody locally hear Bill Shankly talk, what they what is a football club they always had on Everton. Everton and Liverpool, when I grew up, were just as big as each other. Liverpool have, it's a fact, have just gone, whoa. They always had very similar fan base where families were actually split down the middle. Very different than Rangers and Celtic thing. There was no religious thing with it at all. People have tried to infuse that. It was never there. Never, ever there at all. That's a fact. It was right down the middle. You could be red or blue. I'm watching these teams as, as I'm, I'm getting bigger. I'm, I'm thinking, what, what's the thing that's drawn me just to Liverpool? It wasn't just that my dad was a Liverpool, because half his brothers were Everton fans and season ticket holders. And I would go and watch Everton sometimes. It was more than anything for a lot of people in Liverpool. It was Bill Shankly's voice. You have the accent, whether you like it or not. The Scottish accent is very, there's a lot of character to it. And I think it played into the Liverpool psyche. They thought, here's this guy come down from Scotland and he's one of us, he thinks like us. And he brought those people together. So no matter how wise and ingenuous or how, how we thought we were as people in Liverpool, it took this Scottish guy to bring them all together. So I think the advantage Liverpool had over Everton, they had a manager called Harry Catterick. He was just an English guy. He was a bit like an accountant. Good manager. But Bill Shankly had the Christmas. So suddenly the cop took off, the songs took off. And it just this romanticism about Liverpool took off and Liverpool just started to grow and grow and grow as a club. And I think the fans, the way they call Everton now the People's Club, in the 60s, the Liverpool FC were the People's Club and Everton, if somewhat, probably bigger and richer. And I think Bill Shankly, that club owes him so much because he took Liverpool to the place he wanted to take it to and the people followed him. And all the romantic notions around Liverpool, the songs, the atmosphere, the cop... It all goes back to him. I said to you, this is the beginning. You get older, you realise it goes back to people. And he was the leader and he was so charismatic with that accent. We just thought, he's our man, he's the boss. And every time he said anything, we all just totally believed him. And even though he would exaggerate and he, he had humour, he was loved so much. Everything that that football club stands for today, it does go back to him and everything he instilled. If Liverpool wouldn't have met Bill Shankly, I dread to think what Liverpool Football Club would have been. Do you still have any of the annuals? Because when I was Googling it, you know, they're not cheap to buy if you want to try and buy, because they go back to the 1950s all the way through. So I don't know, you might be sitting on a wee gold bound there if you've got some from when you were a kid. I haven't, you know, you know what I did? I ended up once, my mum couldn't tell me what to do. We cut all the pictures out of them. And I think the one with Alan Ball on the front, I think that's still in my mum's, but there's biro all over it, drawn, you know, all bits of pictures and stuff. It sounds mad today because we're living in a different generation, different day and age. But it goes back to having nothing. So those books, for me, were always going to get drawn all over. They were always going to get cut up to bits. But now when I look back, I think, oh, exactly. Why didn't I just keep them? If I can take you on now from the childhood to the kind of teenage formative book that you've chosen. And it's, you know, it's quite a step from the football annuals and the book that you've chosen is Papillon by Henri Charrier. And, you know, when did you read that? And what was it that, that stuck out for you about that book? Well, an older person passed me and I kept saying to, to somebody like I'm saying to you, I won't read books without pictures in. And he said, well, if you're never going to read books without pictures in, read this. I don't know when Papillon was published. I don't know what year it was published, does it tell it's, you? It originally came out in France in 1969. Uh, when it was passed to me, 
I used to look at the cover because it was a bit tatty and torn. It was somebody's copy. I remember this guy, it was a, a mate of mine. His name is Finnegan. And they had twin brothers. And he said to me, read the book. He kept saying to me when I walked past him in the street where I lived, you read the book yet? No, you're going to have to give me it back. Oh, okay, I'll give you it back. And then one night I just sat down and I read like 20 pages and I went, and I couldn't stop reading it. And I think what it is, I went back to him and said, can you leave me with the book for a while? I like this. He said, I told you you'd like it. That's why I gave it to you. So when I read it, it was an introduction to me then to, to real books as such. You know, it didn't have to have pictures. It was a story. And it, it opened up everything for me. And I think I went into school with a renewed zest for, for English because I didn't really enjoy a lot of my school lessons, but you'd have to drag me out of English. Again, as you get older, you only, and you can look back on things. I was one of those kids that, I struggled to conform. So if you told me I had to learn maths, I got to a decent standard. I was in one of the top classes in my school. I went to St. Kevin's Catholic Comprehensive, which had two and a half thousand boys, which was the biggest Catholic boys' school in Europe. It was like a, a huge, massive prison, this place, because <laughs> the kids were nuts. They were, they, were, they were all mad. So you'd find, because you learn to look after yourself, I started to look at English in a different light because of this book. This, so it wasn't the teacher. It was because this lad had given me this book. So I started to read books. So I told the teacher, the English teacher, who was an Irish teacher called Mr. MacDonald, I said, I love this book. Can't we do something like this? No, we can't. And they were giving us Macbeth and stuff. And I was like, oh, and I had no interest. And I was reading all this, ye said this, and you know, in that old Shakespearean language. And I just didn't want to read it. So this is what this almost ruined it for me because the school wouldn't read anything like Papillon. They were forcing those other books onto us. And I then started to see school as that's school stuff. That's our stuff. And so I would go to people who were new and said, you got anything like this? And then I would carry on reading and educating that way. But the stuff we were doing in school, because I wasn't good at conforming, I, I struggled to listen. I still passed an O level at GCSE in English only because I loved English so much. But uh, I wish somebody had a pastor's more books in school like that one. Yeah, I, th I think that's key because quite often, particularly with this question, when people choose a book, it's often been a teacher who's given somebody the right book. Sometimes I think as well as if you can find the right book, it's not that people don't like reading, it's just maybe they haven't found the right book. It's everything. And I think sometimes even, I don't know what it was like in your school, but we would often, we would, could be disciplined quite easy by somebody with a really hard Scouse accent. I don't think I've told you this story, Paul, but I'll quickly tell you because it's, it's very interesting. My main sports teacher was Mr. Murphy. He's been a scout for Celtic for years. I don't, did I tell you the story about meeting him outside Celtic Park? No. Very, very weird moment for me, and it's involved with books and writing. That guy was on my case constantly for years. This is a guy who walked into, into school with a Celtic bobble hat on every morning for football, for training, for games, as we called sports, was games then. Uh, and he was always on my case, always on my case, because I was like, naughty, I wouldn't conform. I could play football. And he said to me, you know, you can go and be a football and stuff. And we'd have an argument about Kevin Keegan and Kenny Dalgleish at the time. The reason I'm saying this, that guy was always on me, always on me. And I never listened and I never listened and I never listened. Suddenly after we had Celtic the Musical, the play, I'm walking outside Celtic Park when Celtic played Barcelona one night. And this guy shouted me, this old guy, like 80 years of age, he shot me through the crowd and I'm going, what's that guy shot? Who's that? What's that? Nicky, Nicky, Nicky. And I walked up to him and he went to me, I cannot believe you've written something. <laughs> Do you know what, Paul? It was one of the most surreal moments in my life. This is, I know it's a little bit off topic, but it's to do with teachers. And that guy said to me, 
I knew there was something in you. He said, but I didn't think it was this. <laughs> and so it, that was a really weird moment. But anyway, just jumping back, I, I, I'll reiterate, I'll tell you that story one day because it, it, it was an amazing thing to happen to me outside Celtic's football ground. But anyway, teachers introducing you to the right stuff and, and adults introducing people to the right stuff. Well, anybody introducing you, it is, it's everything. And the, the Papillon book was perfect for me because it was a whole load of adventures. And I thought... I didn't know you could do this without pictures. And suddenly I was in the book and I was upstairs in the bedroom. And my mum and dad were like, well, what's going on with you? And I'm like, because I was always out, outside of the house playing outside. And I went, oh, this book. And, and they were really happy I was reading it. And anyway, to cut a long story short, because it is a good ending to this story, I went to Mr. MacDonald, my English teacher, who was from Ireland, and said, can't we have anything like this? He was all Shakespeare, Shakespeare, Shakespeare. No, 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 no. I ended up being quite disobedient in his class and having trouble with him. And he was reporting me to the headmaster and stuff like that. We found out only like 20 years later on that that guy probably could have given me some kind of literature, but it would have been the right literature for a student. We found out he was in the IRA, so, <laughs> which was weird. And so I thought to myself, I'm going to this guy, get me some books about Papillon. He probably wants to bring me all these revolutionary tales about Che Guevara and all kinds. So he was hiding this, what was going on in his other life. This, this is what they found out of the guy. But he was my English teacher probably for about three, four years. And I think your connection with a teacher can be very important when you're at school. And for that for that guy, Mr Murphy, that you, you meet outside Celtic Park, obviously for you, it's like an amazing, surreal experience. But for him to then be thinking back when he remembers you as a wee guy, and as you say, on, on your case, but for the right reasons, there must be something that he's quite chuffed about as well when he sees the fact that you've then written this successful show about a club that he loves he's he's overjoyed i've been up to, to his house to see him he lives about three four miles from me in formby and he's in really good condition for his age he's like 18 but he ended up being the headmaster of the school st kevin's which as i say at one time was the biggest boys school in europe and uh i think he, he was he couldn't believe it he, he, it's not nice to say this he started to cry and for an old glaswegian guy he was in tears and he said to me i can't believe what you've done so this show that was supposed to be on now that's just been cancelled. He was coming up to see the show, yeah. And yeah, I suppose those are the moments, as you say, in your in your career that really make it all worthwhile and so special. Because obviously the shows and everything, the success of it. But then just when you get those wee personal moments, you're just thinking it makes it all worthwhile. Do you imagine it? You know what, Paul? It'll be a moment I'll, I'll remember till my dying day because there was sixty thousand people. They played Barcelona. It was that game. I think Celtic got beat three or four one. But it was that guy, I remember if Neymar was diving all over the place and the crowd were getting really annoyed with him. And then when I just seen him outside and I heard this voice, I couldn't believe it because I hadn't seen him for probably 30 years. And he looked, virtually looked the same to me. And he just seen me, he shouted me. We've stayed in touch since. It was an amazing moment. I'm, I'm just wondering whether then, if he recognised you after all those years, did you, uh, he must have looked a bit rough when you were at school. <laughs> Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddehy, and my guest, Nikki Alt. And Nikki, we're on to your third book choice, which is a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the book you've chosen is On the Road by Jack Kerouac. I just thought it was written very in, in a real offbeat style. It was sort of like me or you. It's like you walking into work one morning and just talking about your journey and where you're going to. It was very, I liked that offbeat style. of It was like he was making it up as he went along. And I read somewhere about... Uh, 
him writing the whole book in a few weeks, which you could only do if you wrote in an offbeat style. And I just liked the, the nature of it and the way it spoke and it had a very 60s feel to it. I've since visited the Jack Kerouac Museum in Florida. I think he died in St. Petersburg. He introduced me to other American writers. It wasn't just Jack Kerouac. It was like Charles Bukowski. I think probably I like Bukowski's style of writing probably more than Jack Kerouac's. Uh, his book Post Office and Ham on Rye, those books by Charles Bukowski, I, I absolutely adored. But where I liked on the road is it introduced me to new stuff. It made me look for other authors, other writers. That's what Jack Kerouac did. And it was that thing again of seeing people who wrote stuff that made you feel like you could write that way. You could do stuff that way. I mean, at certain plays I'd watched, like there was a play in Liverpool about a taxi driver called Nightcaller. And it was a play that made me think, I can write a play like that. When I read Jack Kerouac's book, it made me think, I could write a book like that. So that's what Jack Kerouac did for me. He introduced me to new writers and made me think I could do it. I mean, we talked earlier on about, obviously, kind of Papillon was one of the first books or the first book you read where, you know, you realised that you could enjoy books and, you know, they didn't have to be pictures or anything. In terms of On the Road, was that the book that made you think or made you want to be a writer? Or what point was it you thought, that's what I want to do and also I think I can do it? I'd always wanted to do it, Paul. It really did. There's only two things I wanted to do at school. And no matter what job was forced upon you or what job you were asked to do, I always tell, I've told a story a few times. So we would go in to see the careers officer. And I remember seeing the careers officer and he said to me, what do you want to be? And I remember saying to him clearly, I would love to be one of those writers who writes books or shows or a footballer. And his, his words to me were very difficult on both accounts, Nicholas. You're probably better off to go and do the apprenticeship that I think your dad's trying to get you into. So what I did, I was sort of told by my dad, you better do this apprenticeship, apprentice engineer, apprentice fitter. You better do this job, and I'm going to batter you. And it was literally that. So I went off into this apprenticeship, and I literally went on into jobs and into employment. And I don't like to say this because it sounds like you're being snobby. It's not it's because of your preference. Young people have this preference now. I did jobs that I hated for 20 years. I really did because I nobody of my ilk and where I was from thought they could be a writer. They just didn't. It wasn't the done thing. And if you told anybody, I think the careers officer and my English teacher were the only people I'd ever said this to. And when I told the careers officer, it was a little bit like, and don't tell nobody what I've said. It was sort of that. And then I'd won a couple of shows by sending poems and stuff. And then when they'd send me a prize or say, can we put this in the paper? It was like, no, don't tell nobody. Because it was like this thing to do in a working class area. Like, you want to be a writer? What? It was like a poncy thing to do. It was like, it wasn't for us. What, what happened when I had my addiction to football and I was literally following football 42 games a, a season, I would always be carrying these little books and scripts with me. Jack Kerouac would, would often be one in his other books too. I st- I, it was a gradual breakthrough for me, Paul. I reached 40 and I went, if I don't do this, the football thing is gone. If I don't do this writing thing, it's going to hurt me. Well, I'm going to be old. I'm going to be on my deathbed one day. And it's going to hurt me so much. So I went back to Liverpool Uni, night school, to do uh, creative writing and just general creative writing, which was script, book, whatever it, it entailed. Then you moved on to specialise in whatever one. And the course was two years and the usual non-conformist in me. I left after one year and wrote Brick Up the Mersey Tunnels. That became a hit play. I wrote a book called Boys from the Mersey, which I think wrote, sold about 75,000 copies, something. Become a bestseller anyway. And I started to realise, I, I just thought I could do this. I always sort of knew I could, but the people around me were always like, no, we don't do that, that's not for us. So I never had nobody around me to let me know that I could. 
this is why it's so important, like you said, where a teacher introduces a person or a, an adult can introduce you introducing a book to your son. This connection is so important. I have nobody at all around me letting me know that I could get away from the building trade, engineering trade, whatever job I didn't like, which was just to pay my mortgage and look after the family. And once I'd made that break and Brick with the Meditons became a hit, I knew I'd never go back because I, it was the first job I'd ever found, the very first job at 40 that I loved. I actually stopped and went, oh my God, I love this. I love this. This is why I've been carrying these books around for years. And a lot, I had those moments where I started to realise why everything made sense, why I've been carrying these books around. I was carrying all these books everywhere I went, on aeroplanes abroad to Europe to football games and reading these scripts. And people would always say to me, what are you doing? And what it was, it was the writer in me. I wanted to do this stuff, but I just didn't know how to go about it. It kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier on in terms of you know the theatre and bringing people who normally wouldn't go to theatre because either they think it's not for them or there's nobody around them that's going to see the shows. You put on shows and you, and people will come. And it's the same thing as you say, if people around you aren't either into writing or they don't know anybody who's a writer, and then if you, as you say, you're not going to turn around and say, oh, I, I want to be a writer, they would just laugh at you or whatever. So you kind of keep that to yourself. But once you, you know, it's something you want to do and you, at some point, as you say, you have to do it. Otherwise, you just you end up with a lifetime of frustration. Yeah, and I think what happens is uh, I even had family who were looking at me, I had brothers and stuff and people around me, writer, wow, go and get a proper job. And I heard that so many times. I heard that probably five times, which is quite a lot. You know, I'll go and do a proper job. What, what, what are you dreaming about there? Where I think everything unraveled for me, it wasn't just Brick Up the Mersey Tunnels, which was a huge hit play because the theatre was, was full every night with 1,400 people. That theatre was going to close down. Suddenly the theatre was packed. The theatre manager was was buzzing because he's now a very successful theatre producer. Today, I mean, I've had ding-dongs, fallouts, fall-ins, fallouts, because I always thought I was introducing new people to the theatre who would never go. And I think I've helped him in his own success. But there was a moment for me, the Liverpool Empire Theatre, it was opposite Jared Gardens where all of my mum and dad's families had been brought up. These are these huge tenements in Liverpool. I think Glasgow would have had them and Dublin and other places. But these huge old tenements, like Art Deco-style tenements, block after block, they should have never knocked them down because they were actually, as far as flats go, they looked really nice. And it was a big community right in the centre of town behind Liverpool Museum. The Liverpool Empire was there and I was always, that's for them, that's for them people, that, that's for the other people, not for us. So suddenly when it was sold out with One Night in Istanbul, I sat on the steps of the St. George's Hall opposite the Empire Theatre. And I watched thousands of people all going into the theatre one night. It was sold out. And I just sat there and watched it and I went, no, I can do this. You're doing it. I, I, it was like it was like convincing yourself. I was actually looking at the audience going, no, no it's you. This is, It's okay. You, you can do this. I still could not tell people I was a writer and I still couldn't say, this is what I do for a living. It was just like, oh, I'll put this show on and we'll see how it goes. And then when I seen that audience going in, I knew... I think since that moment, which was 2009, then I've said, no, this is what I do for a living. This is my job. Yeah, and I suppose for people, as you say, people that maybe in the past might have said, sometimes for understandable reasons and, and just, you know, part of background and culture saying, get yourself a proper job. Once you prove that you've, you've shown you're successful at it, it people's attitudes change because suddenly they, there's a sense of pride of going, oh, that's, that's my brother, or that's my pal, it's written that. And, you know, they kind of, they bask in the kind of success that you've enjoyed then. Well, I heard that I got told because of those generations and very, very similar in all of those tough cities that you grow up in. Those generations don't say stuff like that, but I found out through people. 
that my mum and dad were really proud and they were telling people, that's my son, that's what he did. But I never got that to the face. I still really don't get that to the face. Which <laughs> I think that's just the way they are. But that that was definitely the moment. I'll, I'll always remember it because, you know, and I, I don't want to bring this into it and ha- highlight it in any way, but it, it was July the 12th and the Orangemen were marching around the theatre and the theatre was queuing up and there was like a little bit of interaction and trouble between the theatre queue and the Orange March. And I'm sat on the steps and I'm thinking, you've caused that. It was a, not, it was a weird moment, but it, it was actually a moment what also made me say, well, if you've caused that and that audience is there because of something you've written, you are a writer, accept it. Tell people that's what you are. Because before that, I would never say so. If I'm honest, I, I still struggle sometimes. Now it's, it's bad news. I think it's, it's like ingrained in you. It's, it's bad, really. Because one of the things I, I, I'm always curious about is, obviously, if you, if you write a novel, then it goes into shops and people buy it. They read it in the privacy of their own home. So you're never quite sure what the reaction is. But when you're at the theatre and you're there and you're seeing the reaction instantly from the, the audience to what you've written and it's up there on stage, I mean, obviously, when it's a positive reaction, it must be great. But is there a kind of nervousness? Because you're, especially at the start, where you're thinking, God, I hope people like this. There is. And I think a lot of it stops a lot of working class people doing stuff. You know, they're very scared of that happening. I think they're so scared of failure. A lot of people won't put their heads above the parapets. I think one of the major things in writing, writing books, plays, whatever, is being willing to put your heads above the parapet and say, this is what I'm going to do. A lot of people, it does scare a lot of people off. And a lot of people I know who've written plays and want to write plays and have talked to me, they're scared of that happening. And so they don't put their their head above the parapet. I think you've got to be willing to take it on the chin. And listen, I've had a couple of plays. People don't hear about them that were not successful. I put a show on in Ireland that lost money. And it's not a good moment. That moment where something's a success, it can be addictive if you're not careful because it is a nice moment. But what I would say to you is, I always go back to the thing I was saying to you earlier. You're writing your show. You're not in a war in Syria. You're not looking for a loaf of bread. You haven't got three kids on the floor and no job. You haven't just been working in a steel factory in Scotland and Thatcher's closed or the government's closed the place down. It's not a desperation. You walk away and you say, that hasn't worked or that was good. So what you tend to do, and I've heard like other people say it, is you tend to put success and failure a little bit in the same bucket. You just sort of go, ah, oh, that's good. So when people come to you and you go, this is fantastic, you're like, oh, no, cheers. The first time with Brick Up the Maisie Tunnels, I was like, whoa, I can't believe this. Look what's going on. This audience is all singing. This is so good. And then I realized that it's not good because it doesn't last. Any failure or any success now, I, tend to, I do treat it the same way. If anything, to be really truthful, you learn a hell of a lot more from your failures in theatre than you do from your successes. Because when you fail, you see exactly the things, what you've done wrong. When you're having a success, there's a tendency to just go, oh, everyone loves it, it's okay. I suppose it's because there's always that thing, you hear it in football, never get too carried away or too high with the success and never get too low with the defeats because you can always change things. Something else will happen, but you just need to kind of keep on that and even keel, which I suppose is good advice in general for anything. It's great advice in, in general for anything. I mean, you know, I don't want to cause you no pain, but I mean, who'd ever believe Celtic were going to have a season like this? Who'd have ever believed it? So you, I think when you, you've had a treble, treble, three trebles on the run in football, everybody's just going, well, look at this. The only thing Celtic probably needed to add to it in a football term is European success. Anything, a Europa League, the supporters would have went crazy for it. Or who'd have ever seen this coming now? So you do, you have to temper all success 
with fear and drag them into the line. I just think you do. It's to keep your, your, your sense about you. I was hoping we'd manage to go through the whole podcast without mentioning this season for Celtic. Ah, oh, that's okay. <laughs> I'll just edit that bit out. I, I certainly will. Um, in terms of the podcast, you know, going from a book that you would recommend to anyone, uh, I always ask people for a book that you couldn't be paid to read again. And you mentioned you didn't give me one book, but you also mentioned, for example, you don't really you don't read a lot of fiction. Is it more non-fiction? I take it then that you you prefer to read. I do. I I just think that uh, truth is stranger than fiction. When I'm reading something and it's real, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe this. So when something is actually, it really surprises you and shocks you off the page and it's a true story. At the moment, I'm reading Sea Wolves, which is a history of the Vikings in Britain and some of the things they're getting up to and you know it's real. I'm, I'm just reading about these Vikings and people go on a lot about the Irish settling parts of the world. I mean, settling parts of huge parts of Glasgow and Liverpool, for instance. But then I, when I realised that the Vikings had settled Dublin, I'm taking this further back. So I'm going, whoa. So I love the fact that that's real. I'll show you a book here I'm reading at the moment, which is No Hunger in Paradise, which is Michael Calvert. Now that's truth. That's all about young footballers now and how bad it is for them to make it in the game. And if they don't make it, the downfall of falling off the cliff. So I do mainly read non-fiction, but in exceptional circumstances, I'll read like, I'll read this guy, Elmore Leonard, which is... American crime, but Elmore Leonard is so good that it doesn't matter that it's fiction because that guy can write. If I probably had to pick a favourite writer of all time, it might have to be this guy because he writes so lean and so to the point that once I pick up one of his novels, I, I can't put it down. So I will read fiction, but it's got to be, an ex- for me, and everybody is different, it's got to be an, exception, an exceptional writer. Is the, the one book I mentioned, you did, you did give me one book if you had to choose... And it was the, the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, which I don't even think uh, you managed to finish first time around, so we certainly couldn't pay you to read it again. Well, it was just what well, I was so involved. I mean, and I think people, I think people who like stuff like spy novels, they've got to have good levels of concentration. I haven't. If that story doesn't grip me, it's like if I watch something on TV. If somebody says, this is brilliant on TV, I watched uh, Nicole Kidman recently in Big Little Lies. Different. And right away I went, production levels are high. This is good, really good. And I loved it because the production levels were so high. Then the other day, I'm watching a thing called, and you may like it, a lot of people may like it, Succession with Brian Cox in. And people have gone, on about how brilliant it is. But I didn't like the characters from episode two. And I just gave up on it because I didn't like the people involved. So a lot of it goes back to this and the Da Vinci Code and anything to do with spies. I don't like anything to do with spies. Anything that's quite complicated or involved. I like a story where it says, you know, a, a guy was poor. He became a boxer. He, he had the big house. He lost the big house. And there's all these crazy things happening. It's like a journey like this, you know, like the, uh, the Cinderella Man, that, that movie and stuff. So anything that gets too complicated, especially if it's fiction, I don't think you've got the, the time in your life to read it, the years, because you're reading somebody's story. And I'll read anybody's story. But if it's somebody's story and it's complicated or it starts to get a little bit complicated and starts to say this and that and this is happening because of that, I'm thinking, well, he's only, he's only, it's mainly made up, this stuff. I, I lose interest really quickly. Because my, my Dan Brown story is I used to, sometimes when you do wee events at libraries or book readings, and I used to always, my line always was, I want to become Scotland's answer to Dan Brown. And okay. a wee woman said to me once, she said, oh, son, you want to be able to write better than that? And I said to her, <laughs> look, you're missing the point. I said, I just, whatever I write, sell a million copies, and then after that I can bother about the quality. 
But if I just say to you, see, somebody like Dan Brown or somebody who can write to that level, I haven't got that thought process that can take me to that deep level. For me, it's got to be it's got to be quite light with it. It's an easy read. So I can lose interest really easy. And look, everybody, it's like humour. Everybody has different tastes. So I think even with writers, and I, I would imagine Dan Brown has probably written books I would really, really like because he's a very successful author. But I'm just giving that book as a, as a really successful book. I know it's very successful, but I just didn't get over the cliff with it. So as I'm reading it, like watching something on TV, if you don't get over that little cliff where you continue with it, it's next. And I think that's that's what it's like. I, I won't, if I'm not really loving something very, very quickly, I, I give up really quickly. I, I do, because I just know there's that much, much stuff out there that you can grab hold of to read or to watch. Yeah, because I'm always interested when I ask people that, because either I'm, I'm a bit like you, if I, I start reading a book, I, I probably read majority of things that I read are fiction rather than non-fiction, but if, I'm, if I don't get into it, then I'll put it aside because... There's always another book you can read. There's always another book you can read. You can always go back to it and have another go. But I I, I don't persevere because I know some people, if they start a book, they feel they need to finish it. I'm, I'm just not like that at all. Yeah, well, you know, we're spoiled, aren't we? We have that much stuff now available. There's that many books, that many TV channels. There's that much stuff coming at me. We've basically got now a cinema in the house, haven't we, really? We've got Netflix, we've got Prime. There's so much now coming at you that I think we're reaching, we are in a day and age where you can be choosy, probably me and you now, if we went back to when we were 10 or 11 or 15, what's the, what book is in the house? I don't know, Delia Smith's cookery book. Maybe I'll try and read that because there's nothing to read. And you might get a page in and go, I'm not reading about broccoli soup. <laughs> but the thing is, we're so spoiled now. There's so much you can get your hands on now because, you know, because of the internet, because of the way the world is. And I think, yeah, I think you have to be dismissive. I think what you said the way you are, I think that's a good way to be because I think people going through and carrying on with something they don't really like. I don't think there's enough years in your life to do that today. I always equate reading with enjoyment as well. But it's also, when I was saying to you, I've just started watching The Sopranos because I, do, I don't watch a lot of TV, partly because I always feel when I'm watching TV, I should be doing something else, whether it's reading or mm, writing. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of things that people are here talking about, different series, I know of them, but I, I haven't watched them because I just don't want to tie myself into to too much TV. So probably I'll, I'll probably watch that succession in about five years' time or something. That's a good way to be. No, I think no, a really good way to be now is look at all the reviews, hear the reviews of people you know, and then say, okay, I think I'll read the book now. Even if it's, you know, sometimes there's things that are exceptional. Maybe you're going on about that book. It was a Shuggy. Shuggy, Shuggy uh, Bin. The one that won the Booker Prize. Yeah, thing. Shuggy Bin, yeah. Now, I think it's sometimes if there's something that really jumps out at you that think, you think, I like this, then you'll dive straight on it. But what I tend to do now is I'll have a cooling off period. If everybody's told me it's good, Okay, I'll, I'll give it a watch. If everybody saw me, it's a good read. I'll give it a read. And now you I look, it's, it's, it's a dreaded word to some people. Will you pick up these books on Amazon a year, two years later for two quid? You know, so I pick up so many of those Elmore Leonard books I have there for next to nothing now because he's a writer from mainly from 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So I think it's a good way to be is to just be dismissive. If you're not enjoying something, why bother with it? There's not much stuff coming at you now. Well, we're on to the... The last question in the podcast, and that's either the last book you read or a book you're currently reading. And you mentioned a couple that you're reading just now, but the one you'd chosen for me is a book called Say Nothing, uh, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland by Patrick Radden Keefe. And what was it about that book that A, made you want to read it and, and B, has, has stuck with you? Well, I read a lot of, book on, a lot of books on the troubles because as a kid growing up, I could see it on the TV. The two main things I remember on the TV as a kid were the Apollo moon landings and those, you know, those rockets taking off from 
when they take off from NASA and you'd be looking going, what one is this? Oh, it's Apollo 10 or whatever. And the other thing I remember every night on the news was riots in Belfast and, and Derry and places and all of these, you know, trucks overturned and there was fire and flames everywhere. And then my mum, they'd say to us and family members, they'd say to us, you're lucky you weren't born there. So I grew up with a, a real interest in the troubles and, you know, very similar to Glasgow, we had that Catholic Protestant thing going on, that Irish sort of like and Presbyterian thing going on where we had marches and all that stuff, which has died out here now, virtually died out, which is really good. I know to a, a certain degree it hasn't in Glasgow to some level, but very interesting. So later on, I made it my duty to go and go around Belfast and Derry and have a look at where these atrocities, battles, you know, things had taken place, whatever you want to call them. So I read a lot of books, and after a while, after you've read maybe 10 books, 15 books, it can become quite boring because you think, well, I've read that before, I've read this before, I've read that before. So I hadn't read anything for a number of years, so I, I just sent a message out on social media, and a number of people who were involved in the struggle, both sides of the fence, told me about that book. And I thought, because even the other side of the fence had told me about that book, which they would often say it was biased, I wanted to pick up that book. But what I wanted to read about, Paul, is I wanted to read about the female perspective, and a lot of that book is about Dolores Price, which I thought was very, very strange, that young girl growing up uh, with a, a Republican background, growing up in Belfast in those times. And a lot of that book is about her, and a lot of that book unravels the answers that were never never answered, the, the things that never came to the fore about whether Jerry Adams was IRA, which is way beyond proven, especially in that book, because Dolores knew him so well. And Dolores got into a lot of trouble because she always just spoke the truth. I think she ended up an alcoholic. She died recently a few years back and stuff. But I wanted to read her perspective. But the great thing with that book was, it's a bit like the other one I read was uh, Voices from Beyond the Grave. And it, it literally gives you a lot of the answers of why the troubles happened, the people who got involved, why they got involved, what it was like. So it, it, it sort of educated me about all of those things I'd seen on the news as a kid. And it sort of put a, a stamp on how bad it must have been to grow up right in the middle of all of that stuff. So that book, I think, is as good a book on summing up why I was glad, and I can say it now, because when we were kids, we used to say, imagine living there, all those battles going, it must be so exciting, boom, 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 boom. You get older and you think, I'm so glad I, I wasn't involved in that because you don't know what, what would have happened to you. So I think that book told that story really, really well. Because it's interesting, you know, you say, I think he's based, I'm not sure if he's American, he's based in America, because... One of the previous guests on the podcast, a guy called Aidan McQuaid. And first of all, he'd chosen one of his children's books. It was a book, I think, called The Hound of Ulster by Rosemary Sutcliffe, who was an English writer. And then we got on to talking about, he said, some of the best books that he'd read about Ireland, about Irish history, about the, the more recent history of the Troubles, were written from people who, you know, were English or American or, you know, that had an outside perspective that were able to maybe just have that step back and to maybe be more objective in how they were looking at it. That obviously, if you were, you know, from the country, is you have a different perspective and a different view of, of how how things were and, and so tell a different story. It's very, very true. And if I take it to, if I take it to you uh, from my own perspective, where I was quite fanatical about football when I was growing up, up until 10, 15 years ago, you tend to think only your football club is fanatical with all those songs like you. Then you go and see other football clubs and you go, hang on a minute, the first one I went to see that wasn't my football club, the Celtic football club went, hang on, these have got loads and loads of songs and loads of fanatical supporters like we have. Okay, so there's more. Then you would go to like West Ham and you find all these EastEnders who are mad about their football club. Then you start to unravel and you think, hang on, it's not just you. So I think 
the outside perspective is really good. And I think one of the things I really enjoyed about writing the Celtic show is because I was a little bit detached from Glasgow. I wasn't involved in stuff or didn't see stuff that certain people, when the show was on, would tell me, oh, but this, but this, but this. And I thought, well, maybe it was good that I didn't hear those points of view. Are you with me? You realise that more as well. I think if you're a writer or a creative person, you've got to take those outside perspectives into what you're doing because otherwise you end up, you know, you, you end up writing from a narrow viewpoint. I think the earliest things I wrote, when I reread them now, they come from a much narrower viewpoint than I have now. So that the person who said that, the uh, the writer guy who said that, I think that's a that's a very good point. And I think I do think you would disagree. I could probably write a book on the east end of Glasgow and people settling in Glasgow and what it. I, I think the research and the stuff I read, because it interests me because it's a different city than my city. I think I could write that maybe as good as anybody where somebody would disagree. Whereas I think somebody could write about being in Liverpool maybe better than me. Whereas I always thought in the past they couldn't. Nobody can write that like me. They haven't lived that life. But what I would say is it takes somebody outside. I would agree with that. I think it's a really good point. Now, we're almost out of time in terms of the, the podcast. And just before, before we finish up, I mean, in terms of obviously... You say there's kind of been limitations in what you can do in terms of travel and the theatres are closed, but I take it you've still been keeping yourself busy in terms of your writing? Oh, very busy as soon as we stop here. Now I'm, I'm straight onto the book again, yeah. So, I mean, I do this full time. So I had to get myself a production company in theatre, which I have, with Sean and Peter, who you've met. I have dabbled with the idea of opening a publishing company. I'm so immersed in this job. There is nothing really that could take me away from this job other than a war, or I'd have to be absolutely penniless and go and jump in a, an Amazon truck and deliver parcels or something. But I, I found a job that I love. I'm never going to go away from it. So I'm on this job every single day. And at the moment, I'm pitching something about sulfur docks at the TV, sulfur docks in the 1960s, about a team of docker gangsters. I'm writing that with a Manchester lad called uh, Ian Huff, who lives over in Connecticut in the States. We're busy pitching that at TV. Very, very difficult to get TV work. Very difficult. What do I say my chances are? Seriously, 10%. You know, you, you do it, you go for it. Theatre at the moment, I'm writing nothing because I have plays, five or six plays I've written that haven't been commissioned, that are there. So if I do do anything on theatre, it'll be them. I'm working solely on books, I would say, at the moment. And I'm also on a, a children's book thing called Strumshies, which is sort of like starting to happen a bit at the moment. So I've written a couple of children's books, so... You know, I, when I see you again, I'll, I'll tell you where they've gone, but I don't really want to say much in case it goes nowhere because a lot of the, this work, it either really goes somewhere or it can go nowhere. But as you, as you mentioned earlier on, you found a job that you love and it's that kind of thing that you always, you always see people saying, you find a job you love and you, you feel you never work another day in your life. It's exactly right, Paul. You know, it's exactly right. I used to dread Monday mornings. I used to love Friday because, oh my God, thank God work is finished. And it is so true. I, I get up each day, and honestly, this sounds strange, especially during this lockdown period. Mondays are like Saturdays to me. Saturday just used to be the standalone day for me. Football, three o'clock kickoff. It's Saturday. Everything's gone. Leave me alone. We're got. We're all going to football. It's different now. I enjoy every day. So when people are saying, "Oh, I don't like Monday. I don't like Tuesday," I could never ever face that again because I'd only face that again if I was absolutely skint then you, sometimes you have no choice. I mean, I'd literally be, have to be on my uppers. So it's totally true. And that's why I, say, I still feel guilty saying I'm a writer, a writer-producer, because it doesn't feel like work. So maybe 
there's something in that. I think maybe when you get the job where you actually don't feel like it's a job, then maybe that's what, what your aim should be. Yeah, but loving the dream. And listen, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what next you'll be working on, what next you'll, you'll be producing. And I, I mentioned right at the start, I absolutely loved Celtic the Musical. So again, touch wood, hopefully before too long, that returns to the stage as well. Oh, I hope so, Paul. And uh, listen, carry on with what you're doing yourself. But if I get the publishing company up and running, you never, never know. But you have to be committed fully for something like that. So that's just something I'm, you know, it, at the moment, I think lockdown, the last thing I'd say, lockdown's given a lot of people time to think. And I think what I did in the last 10 years, I got carried along by the theatre thing. I think lockdown's given me a chance to stop and get book projects finished and dip back into a book. And you know what? You do get better, don't you, with practice? No, because I'd stopped writing books for a while. I'm re-editing a book now, realising all the words I put in that I need to put in. I'm going, slice, slice, slice. Oh, I've knocked 3,000 words off this book, which okay. I thought was in good nick. I thought this is a really good. 3,000 words. I've took it down from 72,000 to 69. Slice, slice, slice. So I think the more practice you get, the better you get at it. As I say, like you said, it is correct. It doesn't feel like a proper job. It doesn't feel like going to work this. It really doesn't. I love it. I'll go out in my car today. I'll drive up to Southport Promenade to get a couple of hours. I'll go for a walk and I'll sit in the car, use the car like an office with the laptop, do a couple of hours in the car and then I'll come home and go to work again. Well, listen, as I say, I'll look forward to, to seeing what you produce out of that. But thanks very much, Nicky, for joining me on the, the Read All About It podcast. I've absolutely loved having a chat with you today about your, your favourite and not-so-favourite books. No, thanks, Paul. I'm sorry if I've gone on a little bit. It's, it's a it's a chosen subject. I could go on about it all day. I could do three podcasts on it, honestly, I could. Brilliant. I might, I might hold you to that in the future then. <laughs> Take care, Paul. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.